Here y'all come on in, take your shoes off, sit on down. Y'all listening to In the Corner, back by the woodpile. I'm Spun Counter Guy. Thanks for stopping by. This is another edition of Trying to Herd Cats, the philosophical podcast where we throw anonymous quotes at anonymous folks and see what pans out. And so without further hesitation, let's get to it. The first quote is, a psychiatrist or psychologist may testify hundreds of times as an expert witness in criminal cases without once being challenged as to the actual consequences of his previous testimony that turned criminals loose into the community. His quote-unquote expertise is never put to the crucial test of a record as to how often he has been wrong and at what cost in money, violence, or lives. As in so many other areas, the word science is used as a substitute for logic and evidence. In short, the essence of science is ignored in favor of its appearance. So that quote is kind of interesting because I've kind of seen it played from both angles. I remember not long ago, there was this expert that uh, the defense was bringing in for um, cases where there was identification. And they basically said that whenever a person of another race, you pick out a person who is from another race, from a lineup, that you're not reliable. And you work in the court system, by the way. Right. Right. Criminal court. And so let's say you get robbed at your house tonight and they come in and you see one of the persons that did it. You identify them and they show you a picture, a photographic lineup. So they're saying that your identification of that person is not reliable because they might be of a different race. You only saw them for a short amount of period time. So if I'm Filipino... I'm not allowed to identify a, a white person. Right. Okay. So they would say because basically they're playing into the stereotype that everybody looks the same. Isn't that kind of presumptuous? It is presumptuous in saying that you don't know the difference in like Hispanic males or Hispanic females or they, everybody looks the same to you if they're not your same race. And so I remember we had this guy and he would come in and you know, they would do this like whole spiel about identification and how unreliable it was. And, you know, sometimes juries bought it and they believed that the person that was, that identified them, misidentified them. And it didn't matter that you have all this other evidence. They would just ignore that and just focus on this. So there were times when the evidence was strong otherwise and... They wouldn't convict because of this expert. But it was funny because I can't remember. I believe that it was set for a trial and they were talking about this expert. And they were like, well, we're going to have to continue the trial because he's in rehab. (laughs) And we were like, what? And they're like, yeah, he's in rehab because he is a cocaine addict. And you're just going like. Are you serious? Like, we've been using this man as an expert for, like, I don't know how many trials, and everybody's paying him, and then it turns out that he's just... A coke fiend. Yes. (laughs) But then, on the other hand, the prosecution has used people that just come in, and they also, they're just as bad. There was a case, like the shaken baby syndrome. I remember this woman who is used by the prosecution. I think she's still used by the prosecution. But she 
is a nurse. But every case that came in through Vanderbilt University, like they would call her and they would get this team together and decide if a child came in with a brain injury, decide whether it was shaken baby syndrome. There was a homeless woman that was beaten to death and she was pregnant and she had this baby. And this couple in Gallatin were foster parents and they took them this brand new baby. And I think it was the baby was about three weeks old. They called the ambulance, the ambulance came, the baby had stopped breathing. And they were like, oh, it's a slow bleed. This is shaken baby syndrome. This couple, the Vanderbilt experts, the police, everybody, everybody said that this couple did that. And then it turned out that this child had suffered this brain injury. This baby had suffered the brain injury at birth. Wow. They lost custody of their children. Their own children? Their own children. DCS came in and removed their children. They had to pay attorneys. They lost their house. They got fired from their jobs. They lost friends. And it became a big, horrible nightmare for them. Were they recompensated? No. No, everybody was just like, oh, sorry, we made a mistake. That's awful. It is awful. Man, that makes me furious just to hear about it. It seems to me there ought to be something in the system where if someone makes a huge mistake like that, especially when it affects someone else's life, they have to pay reparations or something. Right, they didn't. Now I work in a different part of the court system, but one of the things that I where I work is with juveniles that are charged with crimes and they always have to have these psychiatric evaluations. They have these psychiatrists and I recently had a case where the psychiatrist had actually been I don't know what he did, but we were about to start a proceeding in juvenile court and the defense attorney gets up and he goes, Well actually my psychiatrist who's the expert who did this whole study on this kid to see if we could transfer him or not is like he has been disbarred by the state of Tennessee or not disbarred I guess they took away his uh, medical license because he had been found to be doing something illegal in his practice and I was like are you kidding me like we've been using this man as an expert for like all these cases and you have to wonder do we need to go back and reevaluate those cases? That was about to say. Do, do those folks not have a right to appeal their cases? They do, but very, very few, I mean, actually do it. They don't have the money by the time that it gets to where it is. You know, there's so many things that have happened, and you've spent so much money. And unless you're, like, independently wealthy, very rarely do you get an attorney that's going to come in and, like, look at that and make sure that that's a reputable person. Again, a psychiatrist or psychologist may testify hundreds of times as an expert witness in criminal cases without once being challenged as to the actual consequences of his previous testimony that turned criminals loose into the community. His quote-unquote expertise is never put to the crucial test of a record as to how often he has been wrong and at what cost in money, violence, or lives. As in so many other areas, the word science is used as a substitute for logic and evidence. In short, the essence of science is ignored in favor of its appearance. It's like myself. If I'm not challenged, and I think everyone should be challenged about what they say, and because I know my father, and because he dwells inside of me, 
many times, if I think I'm getting away with something without really uh, having the facts for it, and somebody just believes it, mm -hmm. I like to be challenged. Because when I'm challenged, it causes me to go deeper into a study or to make sure that it's correct. So I think, and I believe that many times people get away with things because they're not challenged. But if they're not challenged, then you live a shallow life. Again, a psychiatrist or psychologist may testify hundreds of times as an expert witness in criminal cases without once being challenged as to the actual consequences of his previous testimony that turned criminals loose into the community. His quote-unquote expertise is never put to the crucial test of a record as to how often he has been wrong and at what cost in money, violence, or lives. As in so many other areas, the word science is used as a substitute for logic and evidence. In short, the essence of science is ignored in favor of its appearance. I've had the, uh, the unfortunate privilege of, of having to sit and watch uh, a number of trials. Um, and whenever they bring up an expert uh, witness, they, they only talk about their credentials. They don't talk about previous cases or trials that they've been called to witness on and what the results of that were and whether that was... So that confirms what this guy's saying. I, I can see some truth in it. It's a fallacy of authority, ah. right? Okay. That I state my credentials and therefore what I have to say is going to be correct ah. and true. That is, of course, not true, right? Right, because they're human, just like anybody it, else. It, I'm absolutely fallible, right? Yeah. Just because I have these credentials doesn't mean what I have to say is automatically true. Do you think that there's a chance that when you state your credentials, you actually are possibly going to be more wrong than somebody who doesn't? And I, and I say this because of the, uh, we know, the spoils of hubris and the, or the spoils of pride and, and, you know, overconfidence or arrogance, however you want to put it. It's a, it's a disease and met a lot of intelligent people who have been completely blind. And I thought, like, man, I'm dumb as a rock. And I, I can see that that guy's way off. I mean, you can be blinded by your own myth uh, because you're, you're not allowing yourself to step back and get outside of that bubble and trying to look at things kind of more objectively. You've got this tunnel, this reality tunnel, if you will. There's that, and then there's people talking out their ass who don't know anything about what they're talking about. You know what I mean? Um, so they're extreme. Those are two extremes. You know, there's the person who is so sure of themselves and their own training, their own history that they're not able to see something that that's you know might be even kind of obvious. Mm -hmm. You know, you're kind of an expert in your particular field. I mean, I know it's not in trials, but do you ever catch yourself and think like, okay, have I gotten so good at what I do? Can I be oblivious? You, you get lazy. Oh, that's one of the, the pitfalls. That, you know, you get into a field. Especially if you, you just kind of get to the point where you're kind of doing the same stuff every day. Uh, you have to force yourself to learn new stuff and, and stay current. Doctors, same deal. You know, it's when you know you've got a good doctor is when they're kind of on the Internet while they're talking to you. You know, they're like constantly learning new stuff. They're constantly uh -huh. bringing up things uh, that they just read about last week. 
you know? Uh-huh. That's when you know, okay, this person has their head on straight, and they, they're not just living in the 1970s. So you, um, f- you force yourself to learn new things? Yeah, you have to. I go through slumps, too. Yeah. Again, a psychiatrist or psychologist may testify hundreds of times as an expert witness in criminal cases without once being challenged as to the actual consequences of his previous testimony that turned criminals loose into the community. His quote-unquote expertise is never put to the crucial test of a record as to how often he has been wrong and at what cost in money, violence, or lives. As in so many other areas, the word science is used as a substitute for logic and evidence. In short, the essence of science is ignored in favor of its appearance. I think it's uh, an ongoing discussion in the uh, community of psychiatry, mental health, because sometimes uh, observations and information that one clinician has compared to another is subjective. What they know, what they've learned, and what is accepted worldwide as, as being a symptom or a condition, you have the human factor. So you, you just can't separate that. You can't accept the fact that psychiatrists, therapists, they are human too. They have feelings, they have emotions, right. they have perceptions. So it's not they a... Good days and bad days. So it's not a, an exact science. See, I don't want to say that because the question is, what does that exactly mean? All I can say is that I think that anytime you have a human collecting data, and they can't replicate the way they collect that data and the way they interpret that exactly every time when you got mood and emotion and all that stuff playing into it, then the question is, what really is exact science? Have you personally seen, have some experience where you you can see clearly the biasness or maybe the, the blindness of the so-called expert? I have been part of treatment teams where I know that uh, People's feelings and their their humanness played into their perceptions or the decisions about what they think they see with someone. We're all there. Me too. It's kind of frustrating because I don't think that you should take it as law or absolute. I think it's a good starting point. You should respect the experience. Experience is really important, but you have to keep in mind also that symptoms, conditions are they do have some fluidity. Have you seen anybody their life being ruined by a so-called expert that probably got it wrong? I have. I, I mean, really? well, their life being ruined, I can say that the, the situation that they were in were com- made more complicated. Uh, but I think that people should always, when it comes to mental health and when it comes to uh, a counseling and something that's kind of subjective, I think you should always get as many opinions as you possibly can. I mean, even myself, when I have engaged in any kind of counseling or any kind of feedback from a professional, I usually try to get like three or four different opinions or, or perspectives. I even do that like in my personal life when I'm talking to friends. Uh, I might tell one friend who I know has known me for like, you know, 20 years, I might tell them the story, but then I want to find out what a friend who doesn't know me that well also, that may, may only know me for two years. I will ask like four or five different people really? uh, before I make a decision about something really important. Once, it was a relationship situation, and I was 
angry about something and I can't even remember the situation, mm -hmm. but I would poll my friends and, mm -hmm. because some of my friends will jump on the hating boat, I call right. it, jump on the hate cart with right. me and say, yeah, yeah, you yeah. know. Dumper. Yeah. yeah. And, and then, then another friend would say, well, come on now, I actually think you're being a little bit too harsh. Mm -hmm. And that's important stuff for me. I mean, it's really good to hear that, you know, from some friends, and usually the ones that have been my friends longer, who feel safer in our, our friendship, will tell me the truth. They'll, they'll say, you know, I think you're being a little, kind of being a jerk about that. Or, you know, maybe you're, you're not being fair. And of course they do it constructively, sometimes with humor. And then friends, people who don't know me, or people who don't like feedback themselves have a more difficult time. They don't want it to give you feedback because they don't like to receive it. They're afraid you're gonna, you know, you're gonna respond or lash out, which that's not what I, I want to do. And I will try to say, look, I really just want to hear what your thoughts are about it. I've had a friend that I tried to tell some situations to a friend of mine. I was a close friend of mine who um, was dating a woman, a young woman. That we were all young, young and I felt like she was being very dishonest and even kind of in a pathological way, she was making up that someone was stalking her. And just because what I knew about that kind of behavior and some patterns that I'd seen, I told him, I don't trust this. I don't think, no one, I don't think this is real. I was right. And, but I didn't find this out until like 10 years later. They were in a relationship, everything was good. He was working for US Missile Defense. He and I separated. We were living in an apartment together. He was dating uh, this woman. And I told him, I said, I'm uncomfortable about this. I don't think this is all true. And he's like, so we got in a big argument, big fight. And he's like, you know, that's, don't say that just like you said. Don't say that about my girlfriend. You know, how dare you kind of stuff. And uh, so that was it. So we left kind of in a really awkward place. And then one day I saw him at a football game. And I said, hey, man, how's it going? I went and sat down. So he said, and he goes, oh, man. He goes, and we talked and talked. After we kind of kind of reconnected what you've been doing, what you're up to. I'm married now, I'm remarried, da da da. He said, you know, do you remember this woman? And he said her name and I said, yeah. And I was thinking they were married. He goes, you are completely right about her. Wow. And then he tells me this horrific story, something that seems like you would see on television, uh -huh. like uh, like one of those terrible Lifetime movies. It's like, what? <laughs> yeah. It's like, are you serious? And I felt bad for him because he was one of the nicest people in the world. She paid someone to stalk her. Whoa. Paid them. And part of this, now this is the psychology part of, this is the, I guess the therapeutic part of me. I think her self-esteem and belief that he would have never dated her and stayed with her had she not had a problem. He was her protector. It was like somehow she tapped into the fact that he liked being her protector. I see. I bet it still didn't feel good to be right though after all those years. No. It actually felt really awkward yeah. when he, 10 years later when he said you were totally right, uh -huh. everything you said about her was right. It was just awkward. And last quote, it is amazing how many people think that they can answer an argument by attributing bad motives to those who disagree with them. Using this kind of reasoning, you can believe or not believe anything about anything without having to bother to deal with facts or logic. An idea is bad because of the idea as opposed to like who's saying it. If somebody says a good idea, 
Mm. It's like, oh, that's a good idea, no matter where it okay. came from. So you're not the person who kind of like, oh, well, before I agree or disagree with that, <laughs> who said that, you know? Oh, well, I am that person in a sense because I think it, it can give context. Mm-hmm. Yeah, because you did just give me a quote and I was like, oh, who said that? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> but it wasn't like I was going to like disagree if it was so-and-so. Right. I feel like I could be surprised by somebody I don't care for. You, you have particular opinions on things. Right. Oh, yeah. And obviously that brings you to disagree with others. I mean, you ever feel yourself writing somebody off? Because oh. you think like oh they're just they're just idiots or they're hateful or they're greedy or they're hate, hate, uh, hateful. They're sycophants or you know help me uh, well disengage or disconnect with somebody. You feel like sometimes it's a waste of time to try to find someone's motivation or, or or yeah what or see the good in, in d- someone you disagree with. Mm, okay, so partially this would depend on how pertinent for lack of a better word it is to like a relationship Mm -hmm. so i think that if if you've come to the point where you're like well i don't know who that person even is Mm -hmm. and that's a meaningful shift as opposed to like because you thought you did know who they were Mm -hmm. i don't have experience in this regard of going like oh wait a minute so and so thinks such and such then i better find out what's going on and you know that kind of thing mostly i'm just like oh hmm they think that way usually it kind of makes sense mm-hmm. in some form or fashion yeah if i've got enough context mm-hmm. for who they are but you don't write them off per se or no have you ever been written off who you know i did make i i made an unwise comment uh on a facebook post and was blocked Ooh. very quickly but I felt like that was a rash move. Uh-huh. I was trying to make a joke. Subsequently, I've been like, oh, I was an idiot uh-huh. for doing that because I really hadn't had any contact with them for uh-huh. a long time. It was just like, oh, I remember that guy from you know, some class or whatever. Uh-huh. And then I wrote something funny. Uh-huh. In fact, I, I can give the context. They were writing about, and this is the kind of statement where it's like, it can be true, but like the attitude that you perceive it being said with mm-hmm. can rub you the wrong way. And it, it just made me want to make a joke. But lots of people were commenting on the page and I, that should have been my cue to stay off because <laughs> I think they got tired of all of them. Uh. So the comment was like, hey, if you've got electricity and a shelter, you've got nothing to complain about. And that, and that was the comment, right? Uh-huh. Okay. Now, it was made from someone who has put as comedian, like, what they did, which I don't have any context as to the validity of that. But I was like, in my head, I was like, that's kind of what comics do for the most part. Right. Not necessarily what they were doing, but my comment was was just like, almost non sequitur. Uh-huh. I was just like, oh, it seems to me like this is something comedians say so that they can go on and complain about a bunch of stuff. <laughs> and then I was like, I like to put on my headphones, and that's why I don't complain. You know, it was something really dumb. And then he was like, oh, you're that a-hole who was mad about what his life had become or Whoa. something. Whoa! Yeah. And that's, I was just like, what? And then, he, and then blocked me. Oh, so no. I couldn't even respond to that. Uh. <laughs> but I mean, so, so anyway, that's, that's a place where I was like, I guess that guy doesn't like me. <laughs> <laughs> Were you kind of hurt by it? 
Yeah, because I was in a vulnerable place. So, and then my my brother was like, "Hey, who was that guy?" And so he was like, gonna like stick up for me or whatever. Mm-hmm. And uh, that kind of put it in like another like arena altogether, where it was like, "My my big brother's gonna try and, and yeah. like, no, no big brother, don't help me." You know. <laughs> anyway, I, I mean, I, I've since gotten thicker skin, and as well as learning to bite my tongue or <laughs> tape my fingers. It is amazing how many people think that they can answer an argument by attributing bad motives to those who disagree with them. Using this kind of reasoning, you can believe or not believe anything about anything without having to bother to deal with facts or logic. Basically, that's discounting an argument by attacking the character of the person who's proposing the argument. So that's called ad hominem. And that's a basic logical fallacy. It has no validity as a logical argument, but it's very common. And of course, we see it a great deal now. I mean, it's totally at the national level now. We see like, without necessarily naming names, mm-hmm. if somebody says something bad about somebody, like the, of some of their policy or whatever, they're just attacked as a, as a person. A character assassination. Well, yeah, it's all like the level of insult. It's not really any, any kind of reasoning at all. The other thing about that is, too, is that what I sent you today, the moral matrix. So if you believe that somebody who is having, who's arguing with you has a bad motive. So let's say, for example, like, like we all have a different idea of what may be good or bad, right? Mm-hmm. So, like, for example, I believe there is such a thing as good and bad, but we all see it differently. So, for example, look, on this this infographic of the moral matrix, let's take, for example, how you view, is charging interest good or bad? Mm-hmm. Is being drunk good or bad? Is gambling good or bad? Is contraception good or bad? Is abortion good or bad? Is gay marriage good or bad? Different people or different groups are going to answer that differently. So like, say, for example, you have the idea that premarital sex is bad, then you might have the idea that anybody who disagrees with that is extolling an evil. And therefore, in your mind, you naturally infer that evil can only come from bad motives. Okay. Because it doesn't fit your concept of what is moral that so to defend it is by its nature, according to your conception, possibly evil. So the other factor, I think, is that we all have a moral compass. So the moral compass is kind of like a regular compass tells you what's north and what's south, right? But you can fool a compass. (laughs) You can fool a compass. Just like if you put like a magnetic field, right, next to a compass, it's going to point to a direction that the compass thinks is north. So basically, I think it's similar in the sense that you know, if like you belong to a particular group of people that exerts a strong magnetic field on your moral compass, it may get it to point in a direction that is closer to north than what your compass originally pointed, or it could turn your pointer totally away from true north without you knowing. Well, it made me think that things that when I was younger and I hadn't done a lot of 
bad things. You know, it was easy for me to judge other people, but when you get older and you, you fail here and there, and I become more empathetic with certain exactly. things that I still think are wrong or destructive. But I think, well, I can, I've been there. I understand that. Well, yeah, because why would anybody attribute bad motives? And because our, our sense of identity doesn't just center around our body. Like, you know, you wake up in the morning and you have this, the same body that you had yesterday. So naturally, you associate your identity with your body. But you also associate it, you know, with other things like your beliefs. You know, like your your moral beliefs. So, like, if a person is basically attacking one of your moral beliefs, in a way, you might interpret it as an attack, not your physical body, but on your identity body, on your your sense of identity. It's a, it's a sort of a, you might infer that it's kind of an attack on, on you personally, because you believe this and you've, you've sort of, you know, have your identity wrapped around that in a certain way. So that might be one reason for attributing bad motives to someone uh, who disagrees with you because it, it can be taken as an attack. Let me throw this at you. If you throw that at me, I might interpret bad motives. <laughs> That's fine. <laughs> it depends on what you're throwing at well, me. Well, then I'll catch you and I'll say, gotcha. <laughs> well, uh, kind of like something you said earlier, most people want to think that they're good. They arrive at their decisions because of good motives. So there is that inclination to think if someone says something opposite to what we say, then, well, that if I'm a good person, I'm pretty sure I'm right. So this person who's contradicting must be coming from a, you know, an evil or a place of a misunderstanding. Do you ever catch yourself doing that? Well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, I've been thinking about this question. I forgot the guy's name, but there's a really good social psychologist who has talked about this kind of thing. He talked about something called moral humility, which is exactly sort of the opposite of what you just said, because you do sort of have a tendency to get on your high horse and think that, okay, you finally got it figured out after all your struggles and everything, right? And now you want to defend your position as if it's a fort, and you've got to be right. So then in this way, what it means is that you can't learn from anybody. You put yourself in a position where, like, you've got it all figured out, and that's it. And, of course, it's a very arrogant position because our point of view, essentially, is that only God is perfect. A human being always has uncertainty, will never have everything figured out. And so for a human being to think that they have got it all figured out and are certain about everything is profoundly arrogant. And this, I think, is, a, is the issue like with assigning any kind of inf infallibility to any human institution, be it religion, a church, anything. You can say, okay, Christ is God, but you can't say Christianity is God because Christianity is human, mm -hmm. and consequently it is fallible, just like everything human. Right. But the problem is, if you say, like, okay, all right, but this religion and this book tells me that this is the way it is, and this is what's right, and this is what you have to believe, then that can create a very serious problem, because any form of absolutism is very dangerous for human beings. 
for example, what you were saying a little bit earlier about the situation with the homeless people or the people that were addicted or whatever, let's say we apply an absolute formula to them. Mm-hmm. Let's say it's all about laziness because some people want to say it, that's what it's all about. And therefore, let's just not help anybody. Let's just give tax cuts to the rich and let's just not help anybody. So if we apply that, the amount of damage and human suffering is insane. But then let's say we apply the other formula. Let's just give them whatever they need. So then that doesn't take into account the other aspect of the problem, which is that it becomes a way of life to live on the goal. And that's not good either. You can't have like an absolute formula So, like, you have E equals MC squared. Okay, fine, great. That applies to physics. But human life, you can't put formulas in. It cannot be, you can't plug human lives into formulas. Because human beings are not variables. Anytime you want to say, like, you want to make your position on a certain issue to be that absolute, then you are putting those absolutes as more important than human beings. Bad motives also, of course, um, exist. But the thing is that in history, if you look at history, a lot of the really horrible things that have been done by people were actually done by people that thought they were doing good. Almost all of them. Yeah. This is the real problem of, like, you know, this kind of absolutism about your ideology. But also, you have to... Think too that, okay, we talked about a moral matrix, like people have different positions on the moral matrix. But then there's another group of people who really appear to have no position, but use the people, for example, you know, like politicians who will use people with certain values so that they can get power. And then, so that would, we can call that a bad motive. So bad motives also do in fact exist. We probably see them more than they actually exist. In other words, not that many people actually have the bad motives. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I tend to think that we all have to justify our actions in our heads. The, right, to the, give our actions some kind of sanctification. So the politician who may be exploiting religious people and has no convictions about what they believe, you know, I'm sure in his mind has justified it, like, well, they're helping me do greater goods, or back to an earlier conversation we had about helping homeless people blindly without looking at the actual problem, again, they probably justify in their heads like, well, you know, we're helping people, so don't question it. It's all over the place. Again, it is amazing how many people think that they can answer an argument by attributing bad motives to those who disagree with them. Using this kind of reasoning, you can believe or not believe anything about anything without having to bother to deal with facts or logic. Uh, Because I live in L.A., a good chunk of people in my church are probably illegal or DACA recipients. You know, I used to teach in South L.A., South Central inner city, so I have a number of students who are now DACA recipients, actually. I think if it was a very isolated situation, you know, where there were no histories of past illegal uh, immigration issues, I would actually be very pro-DACA. But I think because we have a history of different policies that keep pushing, pushing, pushing more open doors, I'm actually more on the side of being against DACA than for it. I don't say that very out loud with my church friends, but the few that I did thought I was being uncompassionate 
And I thought, is that a bad motive that they're attributing to me, that they're labeling me as being someone incompassionate, rather than, oh, well, why do you think that? And what are what are some past cases for you to, you know, instead it's more like, well, how could you say that? That's very mean. I think another one was the whole wedding baker issue, because that was on my Facebook post. And I part of me was like, I shouldn't have done that. But then a part of me realized, like, how different and how, how much of a minority I am in my liberal urban church in L.A. <laughs> Were you accused of hating homosexuals? Yeah. And, you know, I'm actually pretty pro-gay, even as a Christian. It's not a gay issue. It just happened to be a gay wedding cake. But it was the fact that, that this small business was being sued and and from another party when they could have just gone to another bakery. Yeah, I was thinking about this the other day because if you look at the details of the case, it wasn't that this bakery didn't want to serve gay people. They just didn't want to make cakes specifically for gay weddings. It would be akin to them saying, we don't mind serving Aryan supremacist guys, but we just don't want to make a cake that looks like a swastika. And there is a difference, but probably for political reasons, the media didn't make that distinction. Right. I think that wedding bakery, actually, they just stopped making wedding cakes altogether. Well, yeah, they were sued out of existence and out of business. Yeah, he had to pay a fine. They were under scrutiny. They had to submit a quarterly report. I mean, like, goodness, that is a prime example of how much government... And this is an individual, like, small business. Like, goodness sake. But to go back to the Facebook post, how did it end up playing out? And everybody that chimed in was against me. And everybody that chimed in was my own church friends. Except one guy who agreed with me that didn't even go to church with me, that didn't even live in California. He was just a high school friend who's an atheist. So I think that was kind of a very emotional, like, wow. I didn't realize it. It was just one um, example to show how I had a very different way of thinking than kind of the rest of my church friends. And also, like, attacking me basically being anti-gay, but also, like, an anti-Christian in love. Did you at any point get irritated to being attacked and just start attributing bad motives to them? No, I was I was on the defense the whole time. Right. And then I would personally actually message them and say, you know, I hope you don't think, like, I'm anti-gay. This is an issue of personal freedom and the separation of church and state. And actually, I felt like I was more on the proactive side and saying, like, if my kid was gay and was discriminated, I would be sad. I would want to protest and give a zero-star Yelp review, but I wouldn't go and file a lawsuit. I would just tell my kids, like, dude, get over it. Go to another baker. They'll lose their business. And I think because I was telling them, maybe from a libertarian view, I believe rather than a legal action, a free market action actually plays a louder and a stronger role. If this bakery had a reputation of being, you know, homophobic, well, people are not going to go there, and they're going to want to go somewhere else. I have one friend defend me, but she's an ultimate social justice warrior. To flip it, I don't know if you remember this incident in Seattle, I believe, where a group of Christians, maybe a youth group or something, were meeting together at a coffee shop that was owned by a gay guy, and the gay guy got upset, started yelling at them, and wanted them to leave. In addition to that, started to say what he was sexually do to Jesus if he could. And I wonder, would your church group feel the same way about that business owner's rights to discriminate versus the cake people? Um, yeah, I would actually side with that business owner. He, you know, I think he might have been obviously wrong, and there should be some 
maybe needed reconciliation or some open, clear communication about it. But it seems like being forceful and telling them to get out, just get out. Yeah. (laughs) And go to another coffee shop. I'm gay. Okay. You have to leave. I own the place. Was it like, was I it have a right to be yeah. offended. Right. Are you tolerate my presence? We are. Okay. Right, we're actually oh, in really? the coffee shop. Really? If I go get my boyfriend right now and f*** him in the ass right here, you're going to tolerate that? That would be your choice. Are you going to tolerate it? Then no. leave. Okay. All of you. Tell all your f***ing friends don't f***ing come here. Okay. Yeah, I like ass. I'm not going to be saved by anything. I f*** Christ in the ass, okay? Okay, we should note that we're talking a week later after we initially talked, and you have since watched the video, and we messaged back and forth about what your initial reaction would have been had you been in the coffee shop, and then maybe after you cooled down, how you would have approached that situation. This is kind of um, not my mind speaking, but kind of like my emotions speaking. So if I I was sitting there and being asked to be kicked out by this gay owner who's offended by my belief. I think knowing myself, I would have been like, as a Christian, I would have still been like, dude, okay, you can kick us out. I don't actually disagree with you, but you're being such a asshole about it. You know, and I might have actually just said that. Later, after reflecting, I don't know if I would be offended. Probably want to come back and have a maybe of a more of a civil conversation, or like reach out to him and saying, you know, we're not really, or give him a different uh, painting of a Christian that's loving and open and not anti-gay. Again, it is amazing how many people think that they can answer an argument by attributing bad motives to those who disagree with them. Using this kind of reasoning, you can believe or not believe anything about anything without having to bother to deal with facts or logic. First question you have to ask yourself is, are you reasoning, actually? To me, reasoning is not coming from an emotional place. It's inherently more of a rational kind of thinking place and you immediately have the problem of how do you know that it's a bad motive you're making a huge assumption if people aren't reasoning in your opinion what are they doing to to base their opinions they're using kind of this thing that people like to call the gut feeling which i'm not saying i mean obviously that has validity any major decision in your life marriage you know the people you spend your time with is based on some level of emotion and you can't do it without emotion but to base it unquestioningly on a gut feeling is, I think, highly irresponsible. You know, I mean, that's why we had slavery, because the gut feeling was, well, you know, these people aren't as good as us without bothering to really think it through. It also oversimplifies the problem, which, again, is not about thinking. It's about, is this, it's like, oh, this is too hard to put myself in their position because I disagree with it so strongly. And instead of trying to ask them to explain their viewpoint, which serves two purposes. It makes them more comfortable, so they're no longer antagonistic because you're listening, which is all anyone really wants is acknowledgement of their viewpoint, and you learn something about the other viewpoint, which I think to some people is threatening because on some level they're really not able to defend their point, so they would rather just not entertain the possibility that they might be wrong, let alone you know, whether or not it makes sense on a logical level. In these modern times, it seems to be a little worse than I ever remember it, where 
there's a uh, real sense of right and wrong, black and white. You know, there's no gray. There's no ability to let someone exist outside of my belief system. Do you ever find yourself being tempted to go that route? Yeah, absolutely. I think it's an inherent human quality. I mean, it goes back to like, you know, the evolutionary concept that we developed pattern recognition because it was beneficial. And even if there was no pattern, the few times that it was right, it kept us from getting eaten. So we see patterns whether they're there or not, which is a problem. But I think it's human to want to find a community because that's what we are. We're communal. And I think there's a certain element of, yeah, I mean, there's been times, I mean, look, I feel very lonely sometimes in certain scenarios because it's obvious I'm in a room full of people that have that don't agree with anything I think or believe and I think we all kind of have a desire to have that reinforcement so yeah I mean it's a temptation you know it's like I think I think everyone on some level has had that situation where someone says something that's so unusual compared to your worldview that it causes like a little cognitive dissonance you know you have to try to figure out like well wait how does that even fit because my worldview that there's no room for that you have to kind of take this buddhist idea of stepping back and not getting absorbed and attached to the emotional thing it tells you like oh okay that just shocked me and made me feel emotionally upset but that's not bad that just indicates it's not something i'm used to and i think people mistake that for a bad thing when really that should that should really inspire you to and trigger you to like try to figure out okay, why is that? That curiosity, but I think a lot of people are afraid of just saying, I don't know. Or they do this awfulizing thing, which is a word from psychology, you know, of like, they take the idea that like, oh, if I think that maybe this person with an opposing viewpoint is right, that would mean this thing I believe is also not right. And then eventually I'd have to become like, I'd have to stop believing in my religion. And then eventually I'd have to like give up on the concept of God. And then eventually I'd have to like kill myself. You know, it's like, it's like they don't consciously think that, but there's almost this weird, really inherent fear. I think one of the bigger problems in America right now ties into this story I'm about to tell. It, we have two countries. We have the people in the cities, basically, and they have a certain experience of life. Then you have people that are in smaller areas and out, out in the country or where it's less populated, and they have a totally different experience of reality in life now who's right well they both are because either one of them had they grown up in that other environment would end up having that viewpoint because it's a rational conclusion now rational i think is often misused as a word to say something's good or bad and like if someone disagrees with your conclusions, they say you're not being rational, but you may very well be, ext I mean, look, you can get inside any philosophical system, whether that's a religion or you know, nihilism, nihilism, however you say it, you know, whatever, you can have some viewpoint. And within that structure, it's totally cohesive. And that's rational, even if the conclusion is not something you agree with. So getting back to this story, I was sitting at this cigar shop I like to go to, and a friend of mine was there who's, you know, he's a very kind of even-keeled kind of guy. And there was a woman who, this was a time when before the election when everyone was kind of up in arms about, or maybe it was after the election, whenever there was some discussion about defunding Planned Parenthood. And she was of the opinion that, you know, that was wrong, you know. And she just thought people were evil for wanting to do that because she saw it as like you're taking health care away from women, which 
Yeah, if you say it like that, I don't think any normal, rational human being is going to say, oh, well, that's an okay thing. I, I mean, no one wants that. And that's the problem when you demonize people. You think, oh, well, they just want to kill babies. And it's like, well, no. I mean, you know, that's not what they said. You're making this huge leap of logic. And that's, again, emotional reasoning. So anyway, and so she was saying that that was bad. And he just made the comment, which is a purely factual statement, that he understood, though, why some people wanted to because Planned Parenthood provides abortions. And that's actually a majority of their services in addition to the health. That's not saying you're wrong for having an opposing viewpoint. He's just stating a fact. I mean, you and I could go look that up, and whatever we believe about abortion is not important. What's important is whether or not that statement was true. Well, she completely took that as him saying, so therefore, and emotionally, I think, filled in that gap of, so what you're saying then is this conclusion, which is that we should go ahead and do it, and therefore you're an evil person and because you want to take health care away from women which he never said. So, you know, and this is what I see a lot in public discourse. You know, it's like, oh, you said that, so it must follow that. Well, who says? And that's arrogance, really. There's a certain arrogance in reading people's minds and thinking you know what they're about to say or where they're going. It's like trying to finish people's sentences. You know, that gets irritating. But in that scenario, what happened was she came back at him and was just like, you're this and you're that. And he kept trying to defend himself. And at some point... He just kind of casually mentioned, like, well, you know, where I grew up in Tupelo, for instance, there was this place and blah, 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 and, you know, like their version of health care. Because he's trying to make an argument that there's other ways to have health care for women without the abortion. And so as soon as he said he was from Tupelo, Mississippi, and he has a little bit of a southern accent. I mean, I do, too. It's pretty sexy. But, but um, I mean, let's, let's not kid anyone. But um, you wouldn't want your heart surgeon saying anything with a heavy southern accent. That's a whole other philosophical discussion. Man, we're just going to go in there and cut that right out. Um, But uh, anyway, as soon as he said that, though, she immediately said, oh, you're from Tupelo, Mississippi? And, like, kind of made fun, like, kind of did the accent and kind of was making fun of him for it. And I'm sitting there thinking, this guy, I mean, he's said some really brilliant things over the years. And I've not always agreed with him, but I'm like, you know, what is your accent? Or your upbringing have to do with anything. Because that's, in a way, that's very close to being racist, if you will. Like, it's a parallel concept of, like, oh, you're from here. Everyone from there is like that. So, therefore, it's impossible that you could be anyone else. What's the difference between that and racism, you know? But when she said that, I love his response because he didn't lose his cool. He didn't get angry. And this is why I think it's important to use reasoning instead of letting your emotions get the better. Because, you know, we all say stupid things when we're mad and, you know, are worked up. He kept his composure, and he said, so you basically don't have an argument, and that's why you're attacking me for being from this place. Because, I mean, you know, she had obviously just run out of things that she could attack him on, and that was the one thing she grabbed and was like, oh, I know what you're like now. It's like That was like saying, I don't even have to talk to you anymore because I know you're one of those people. And that's what this all boils down to. If you look at another person and you start with, I know everything about you because I know what those people are like, What's the difference between saying that about them or a black person or an Islamic person? I mean, I'm a fairly left-leaning person politically, but I find it really offensive how that people can talk out of two sides of their mouth and say, oh, I'm very liberal and open-minded, but then turn around and be extraordinarily prejudicial against people that have an opposing viewpoint. I mean, it's just childish. 
And the source of these quotes, both are from Dr. Thomas Sowell, who is an author, economist, and social commentator, whom my friend, John Sonic Young, and I like so much. We put a conversation between Dr. Sowell and fellow Hoover Institute comrade Peter Robinson to music, which will let take us out. When interests are at stake, the parties directly affected usually understand what the issue is. However, when there is a conflict of visions, those most powerfully affected by a particular vision may be the least aware of its underlying assumptions. Explain that distinction between interests and visions. Oh, interests are articulated to the people who have particular interests, know what they are and know what they're trying to do. If you're a farmer in Iowa, you want the ethanol subsidy That's because it. you'll get a higher price for your corn. All right. With, with visions, it's different. The, these are the implicit assumptions uh, 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 with, with which you operate. You may not articulate them even to yourself, but you're assuming things when you, when you talk or when you think. Uh, and uh, seldom are those things are spelled out. Now, in, in a conflict of visions, you talk about two fundamentally differing visions. And two, these two fundamental visions underlie an enormous amount of the Western political tradition. Yes. The constrained vision and the unconstrained vision. Let me take a stab at a tight definition of each, and then you correct it for me. Under the constrained vision, whom you, uh, an, example, an exemplar would be Adam Smith. Human nature is flawed, but it's fixed. And the question is, how do we erect institutions that contain our flaws and permit us to live in the best possible society, given, in effect, the fallen nature of, uh, or the fallen character of human nature? Yes, absolutely. So when you say constrained, it's a vision of human nature itself. Human nature is fixed, uh, flawed, and therefore we operate within constraints. The constraints human nature itself provides. Unconstrained is human nature itself is malleable, and you say that Rousseau, man is born free, but everywhere he is in chains. That's the classic statement of the unconstrained yes. vision. Would you explain that? Yes, that that that. The, th the, the things that we, we suffer uh, uh, according to the, those of the unconstrained vision, uh, it's because of the failure of other people to be as wise or as noble as themselves, because there are no inherent reasons for us to be unhappy. So one looks at pain and difficulty in the world and says, well, this is the way life is. Mm -hmm. Let's, uh, we'll never eliminate it. Let's be wise and prudent and direct institutions that make life as much better as possible. That's constrained. Yes. The unconstrained vision looks at pain and suffering and says we must remake the world. There are institutions causing this pain and suffering. Oh, absolutely. Okay. Now, let me give you another quotation. Two great revolutions in the 18th century in France and in America can be viewed as applications of these differing visions. Explain that one. Well, in France, the idea was that if you simply put the right people in charge and created the right institutions, uh, then the, all these problems would, would, would go away. Uh, in the United States, it was assumed from the outset that there were very limited things you could do, and what you needed to do above all was to minimize the damage done by the flaws of human nature. And this is why they, the United States, for example, has this constitution that's so much lamented by some of those who believe in the French Revolution in which this group is, is offset by that group and nobody can sort of run wild. Uh, if you believe that uh, what you need is to have the right leaders who uh, love the people and so on, a messiah as it were, uh, then, th then, your, then your problems are solved. But if you don't believe there is any, any political messiah, 
uh, and, and you believe that you have to make sure that all people are restrained in what they are able to do, then you have uh, the, the separation of powers, uh, you have uh, elections, you have constitutions, you have all kinds of things hemming you in. Uh, Condorcet, who was a great uh, supporter of the French Revolution, uh, could not understand why they were why there was this separation of powers, uh, and not even when at the end of the end of his life he was arbitrarily thrown into prison, where he continued to write about why the Americans have have this separation of power. And of course, if there'd been a separation of powers, he wouldn't be writing in prison. Right. But what about Americans versus Americans? John Adams versus Thomas Jefferson, for example. Is that a fair contrast? Adams would be constrained, Jefferson unconstrained? To some extent, yes. Uh, uh, Jefferson, when, when the complaint was made about the people who were innocent people killed during the course of the French Revolution, he said that I, I, I would rather that half the world be destroyed than that it should fail. But of course, as it went on, Jefferson backed away and he did turn ultimately against it. Oliver Wendell Holmes expressed it when he declared, the life of the law has not been logic, it has been experience, close quote. Yes. How is he giving expression to the constrained vision? That there, that there is no one who, from sheer intellectual power, uh, can tell you what the law ought to be. That we learn from trial and error simply because uh, we're not capable uh, of, of learning everything just by figuring it all out in advance. The unconstrained vision of the law. Here you quote John Stuart Mill, quote, to look at legal precedents was, I'm quoting you, in Mill's view to make and here you quote Mill, an absurd sacrifice of present ends to antiquated means. Yes. Close quote. How is he giving voice to the unconstrained? Well, this is, this is the notion that we need uh, the, the, someone to come along and update the law from, from his own intellectual resources rather than from the actual experience of millions of people in generation after generation. Uh, no one believes the law should remain uh, fixed as it was at some given point in the past. The question is who shall have the authority to change that law and with what constraints on that person so that that person is not just giving vent to his own feelings or imaginings or theories. In the Corner, Back by the Woodpile is produced by a closet, a pocket, and a suitcase. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram by searching for Spun Counter Guy. You can send us an email via SpunCounterGuy at Hotmail.com. The podcast is also hosted on iTunes and Podbean.com. Peace and chicken grease! <laughs>